Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future, Live. I'm your host, RJB. As music fans, we know that live music is not possible for the foreseeable future. This downtime has allowed for creativity for a lot of musicians, and this week's guest is one of them. Today we talk with Danny Markham, the percussionist for Childish Gambino. Danny's been sheltering at home in Brooklyn, but that hasn't kept her from performing or writing new music. She's recently been working with Sarah Neufeld, violinist of Arcade Fire and Bell Orchestra. At the end of this episode, you'll hear a few original, unreleased tracks from Danny and Sarah. You can find all the videos for these performances on our YouTube page. In the interview, Danny and I talk about her upbringing in Louisville, her time in Miami, her touring with Tune Yards, what she's learned from working with Childish Gambino, and how she ended up on the global stage so many times. We also talk about a special mentor from her elementary school who's still influencing young musicians today. You'll find a special Spotify playlist with all the music we discuss in this episode in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the show. I'm here with Danny Markham. Welcome, Danny. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. We're happy to talk to you. I want to start by going all the way back to the beginning and ask you, what's your earliest musical memory? My earliest memory of playing a mallet instrument, which is probably my my most vivid memory, is back to second grade. My teacher found these, they're called dwarf instruments. They're basically like a xylophone, very small, um, but you, you put them on the ground and you sit down and play. Think of like a toy bell kit. Okay. She found a bunch of these instruments in a closet and she said, all right, guys, if you finish your math and your science, you can play some music. We'll, we'll learn a couple songs after class. So that was super exciting. She, we did our math and science. We sat down. She had us all sitting behind these little instruments and she started teaching us a song. And I immediately, I mean, it was just like, I love this. This is awesome. What was happening around your house in terms of music? Was there a lot of music playing? Was there a lot of music coming out of the stereo, that sort of stuff? Yeah. Uh, my mother always played piano and sang um, as a hobby. And then uh, she was also the musical director uh, from time to time at our church. Um, so music was, you know, we, we always sang and not as like an intentional thing, but at church. And then, you know, my mom for fun would always be at the piano and, and we would be at the piano whenever we felt like it. Um, and then my dad, he did a lot of work around the house and he loved building. And anytime uh, he was doing work, he would always play Motown, Temptation Supreme. So I grew up listening to a lot of that music. So I'm a parent and I have young kids and I would really love for my kids to find something like this so early in their lives and like say like, yeah, one day I was, you know, I painted and I realized like I want to paint for the rest of my life. It sounds like that did come to you quickly. What made that so solidified for you at such an early age? I love this question because I know exactly what it is and it's rhythm. I had an immediate connection to time, tempo, in the way that sort of set with me. Like it was like something that it was like a connection, like it made sense. So it was definitely the rhythmic aspect for me. 
So can you tell us about the Louisville Leopards? Yes. Um, so that same teacher, Diane Downs, who was my second grade teacher, she wasn't even a music teacher. She just um, found these instruments and decided to start a little fun program for the kids. Um, so we would do that initially um, at the end of our classes, and then it became an after-school program. So this group at the time was based out of Martin Luther King Elementary School. Um, that's a public school in Louisville, Kentucky. It started as the Fabulous Leopard Percussionists. Diane always opened it up like, what do you guys want to be called? Wow. You know, and the logo for the, now the name is the Louisville Leopard Percussionists. They changed the name a little bit, but um, even the logo, this was something that Diane was like, does anybody want to draw the logo for our group? And then people drew and then we voted like a true democracy. You know, she <laughs> gave us a voice. How old were you when that started? Was that also like coming off of second grade or was that much later? So that was second grade. And actually, interesting enough, my, my memory is actually before second grade. Uh, it was in first grade. Diane had started the program with with the kids and I was I could hear the kids playing the uh, the songs and I knew that when I was in second grade, the same thing would happen. So I actually went home and actually played some of those songs on the piano. I guess I felt like I can do that. Like that makes sense to me. And so you're the youngest of five. Did your other four siblings, were they, are they musical? My oldest sister is an amazing piano player. We went to the same high school. Um, it's a performing arts high school. She initially went for piano and then she um, went into dance. So uh, yeah, we were all encouraged. In fact, I think Everybody in my house took piano lessons, but uh, it was either it was music and it was also sports. Between the two, it was like music and sports in the household. Were there albums or artists that you discovered on your own that kind of changed your perspective on music? Yeah, there were a couple. Um, so I really loved Sheila E. And I was grateful that my my teacher, my first uh, my second grade teacher, Diane Downs, uh, sort of started introducing me to um, female um, strong musicians and leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, Sheila E. Um, and Evelyn Glenny, who was um, an amazing xylophonist and marimba player. She was, uh, I mean, now she's world renowned, but she became deaf when she was 12. So I just found her like really fascinating. And then again, I wasn't like at the time, I was learning a lot of music already because I started doing this after school program and I wasn't really seeking out at that time like as like an avid music listener I wasn't like seeking for new music or searching for it but um like I said like my dad always played Motown at the house so there was always that sort of uplifting like Motown is like it's groovy and it also like feels good so that's kind of my I guess my music influence at that time yeah yeah, I, I still love Motown. It never goes out of style, and it's it's always like it's always uplifting. It uh, sure is. That's cool. I love it. Did you ever have a drum kit? I got my first very own drum kit probably when I was in fourth grade, and that was given to me by David Levine, who is the head of Hit Like a Girl competition, and he's also the head of TRX Symbols. Okay. And then uh, it was a DW drum kit, which is great because I'm, I'm an endorsee of DW now. And I've, I just think they're fantastic. That's cool. So you did have a variety of different instruments around and you probably played a lot of different styles because Motown has like a pretty specific drum pattern, right? Did you play along to that kind of stuff as you were learning and, and following along? 
Definitely. Yeah. I would basically just like, you know, I don't think at the time I, I was connecting headphones to a, I don't, I wasn't doing like an intense, you know, setup because I was kind of always on the go, like running outside, coming in, playing a little kit, running back outside. Uh, but I did, you know, I would hear the songs that I had heard throughout the day in my head, especially the melodies. And if I could connect to the melody, I would actually use that as a reference for the tempo. So anytime I'm referring to tempo, I'm always thinking of the melody first, and then I can lay the, the drums underneath. Did your parents recognize that you had like a pretty special talent early on in terms of music? Were they encouraging to you in that way? Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. My mom became the first, the very first roadie that we ever had. We had five kids. She had a big van. And she would basically pick up the instruments and take us to our gig, take our instruments to, to the gig with us. My mom didn't miss a beat. So I want to jump ahead a little bit because it sounds like you had a really nice and kind of nurturing upbringing in Louisville. And then you went to Miami for college. What took you to Miami? I went to the University of Miami specifically to study with Ney Rosaro. Um, now, connecting this back, Evelyn Glinney, who um, was that amazing marimbas that I was telling you about, she performed one of Ney Rosaro's most famous pieces. Um, it's a concerto. I think it's called Marimba Concerto for okay. orchestra. And she performed that. And I saw that probably in fourth grade, and I loved it. And I said, one day I want to play that. So fast forward, I'm at the Percussive Art Society International Convention, probably like 2003. And I'm starting to think about, you know, what I, you know, studying in, in college. And um, I'm looking at some mallets and I'm, I'm playing Nays Concerto on the marimba, just stuff that I had, you know, sort of recognized by ear. And Diane said, you know, hey, look over there. It's Nay Rosaro. I said, What? And she said, you should go over and talk to him. And I was like, no, 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 thank you. No, 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 I'm okay. <laughs> and sure enough, I went over and I said, hi, I, I love your music. And he said, how old are you? And from there, he basically was like, you know, play a little something. I played a little something. He said, come audition at the University of Miami. <laughs> and you did, and it worked. I did, and it worked. And I was so lucky to be able to study with somebody so incredible. I mean, he's a great person, too. What was it like? What did you learn from him? And what was it like studying with him? He exposed me to all different styles of music. So up to this point, I'm kind of like, you know, studying a lot of classical music and like sort of chamber music through high school. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thrown into this Miami, you know, there's so many different cultures that collide there. And that means rich music. Um, so with Ney, I was exposed to a lot of Brazilian music and a lot of just kind of world music and sounds. And also he introduced me to a little bit more of improv and jazz on my respective instruments. Interesting. So was there any kind of music in particular that like spoke to you differently in college or once you kind of started learning about all this different kind of stuff? Um, yeah, I got really into Afrobeat, um, Fela Kuti. I had a lot of um, friends who were playing around town and they were connecting this like Latin colors and these Latin rhythms with African rhythms with like funk. So this sort of world opened up a lot of A, opportunities because, you know, all of that music is full of percussion sounds and B, just like a richness, you know, Latin, I mean, Cuban, Afro-Cuban music is 
I mean, it's to me, it's some of the most sophisticated rhythmic language. And yeah, I think it's the most sophisticated language I am familiar with in terms of rhythm. Can you say more about that just for people who don't know about that kind of music? So I guess, you know, with with Roomba, with Wong Wong Co, you have the clave, um, which is, you know, it could be like... And then you have these intertwined rhythms that go on top of each other. Now, with the drum kit player, he's kind of taking on the role of the rhythm, you know, the rhythmic person. Mm -hmm. With Wong Wong Co, with, with Roomba, with a lot of Latin music and Haitian music too, actually, that I've been exposed to, you're taking like several people, giving each person an independent part, and then you're putting these parts together. So it's it feels rich in that way because you're like, you know, instead of having one engine, you have all these parts that make up the engine. Mm -hmm. And that just gives you like, it, it, it opens up your heart and your understanding of, you know, being able to interact with other people and communicate with more people than just yourself rhythmically. Like on a typical percussion kit that you play with, like how many different instruments do you travel with? So on this last, um, woo, this last setup was grandiose um, with Childish Gambino. I had a vibraphone, a Musser vibraphone, very large. I had a Musser glockenspiel. I had all my Latin percussion, uh, congas, bongos, tons of auxiliary, um, cowbell, uh, jam blocks. I had a shaker a that I, I used with my foot. Um, and then I had like four different tambourines um, and wind chimes and cymbals, my TRX cymbals. Like I, I just had like a massive setup, but you know, we had semi-trucks carrying our instruments, so I was able to kind of get and use what I, what I really, really wanted to have there. What's most intriguing about learning about a new kind of music or a new artist for you? I think that uh, learning for me in general is a passion. With Donald, like he definitely, especially in this last album kind of opened up to incorporating some true African rhythms. Um, and Ludwig Granzen, who's also a co-writer and co-producer with Donald on the albums, he was traveling all through Africa and recording all these different artists. And I think that brought some inspiration of these African rhythms to um, the last, you know, album and the last sort of writing process. And then before that, with Meryl Garbus, she was really, really fascinated with Haitian um, rhythms, which are so, in my experience, they correlate so, um, and they're parallel with like Afro-Cuban rhythms, um, these intertwining sounds, and especially with Santeria, which is a religion, um, and the foundation of the, the religion, I think, is, is the drum kind of inspiring these different spirits in, in the dancers. The, the drum brings out those different spirits. So with Meryl, like there was this Haitian aspect to the drumming, which was interesting. And we actually studied with this um, master. His name is Danielle. We studied together with him in Oakland. So with every artist, you know, and, and Donald has gone through different phases of inspiration. Meryl, myself, I think individual, we all go through these different times where we're influenced by different things, people, cultures, countries, you know, whatever it might be. And I think that um, you just learn. You learn, like, their style, their groove, where they sit in the groove, their rhythm, their vibe, 
what they like, what they don't like, how much um, input can I have, or do they want it to be very structured mm -hmm. like the album? It sounds like learning is what drives you. Yeah, I think so. So what drew you to the Bay Area? Because I think you, you went there next, right? Yeah. Um, so after college, I spent some time in Miami playing with some of the greatest musicians I've ever known in my life. And I loved it. But you're a little bit like cut off, you know, geographically um, speaking, you know, so then I moved to New York, actually, for two years. And I found myself um, cocktail waitressing and getting away from music, actually. And one day I just was like, wait a second, what's going on? So I put everything in storage. And with my boyfriend, we just moved out west. So I spent some time in San Diego, went up to Oakland, and somebody told me like, oh, Meryl's looking for a drummer. And I was like, well, I just moved here. I don't know. So I sent some some stuff to Meryl Garbus via email and uh, went in for the audition. And pretty much the next day, she's like, do you want to come on a world tour? And I was like, yeah, can I bring my dog? <laughs> That's awesome. So did you bring the dog? She agreed to it. She was she was open to the idea, but uh, it would have just been a little too much. So I left yeah. I left her with my mom, uh, who she loves very much. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems that meeting Meryl Garbus and and playing with the Tune Yards that was a pretty big kind of expansion for you. What was kind of special about that musical relationship that you had with Meryl? Oh man, it felt so serendipitous that I ended up on that tour. It's just amazing to me. Um, but I think. The first of all, Meryl, although she won't like call herself a drummer, I mean, you know, not to another drummer, but she is absolutely a drummer. She's such a rhythmic person. She has a deep pocket. She has a really, really, really great feel of groove and rhythm. And what was cool is that she wrote this incredible album and then she gave me the album and she said, play as much as this of this as you can. And so I actually, you know, went and found some sounds. Nate Brenner, who's the bassist and co-creator um, or co-producer, co-songwriter of Tune Yards, already had some like cool kitchen pots and pans and little sounds. And so I was able to just listen and try to play as much of the rhythm that I could. And then Meryl uh, took on the rest, or maybe she would say, I'm taking this part just so you know, do everything else you can. And then so in Essentially, we were taking one big groove and putting it between two people. So there's this level of like support and like uh, vulnerability that you feel because you're like, oh, I'm relying on this person to get the full groove that I have in my head and that I'm hearing, but we're doing it between two people. So there's this, I don't know, it feels richer in some way. There's like room for more room for error. So it's more exciting. For people who aren't familiar with Tune Yards, what, how would you describe the sound? Wow, it's <laughs> I, I actually am not very good at this, but I'm going to try. Okay. First of all, you have these amazing Hockett voice patterns happening. Uh, so all these different layered voice patterns that are very rhythmic happening together. And then you have Meryl's voice soaring over top doing, I mean, just insane vocal gymnastics. And then you have these really interesting bass lines happening that aren't necessarily what you would immediately think of you know, if you just heard the, the melody. So that's sort of, it's so supportive, but it's very interesting. And then two vocalists as backup. So instead of having like a guitarist or keyboard player, two vocalists, because Meryl had recorded. And she even said, she said, when I recorded this album, I thought about how I'm going to perform it 
later, like as a challenge, like I just recorded what I wanted to record in the sound. So um, I would say that it's like um, really kind of pop melodies and then lots of rhythm um, underneath this Haitian sort of six, eight groove that fits over top of like four, four and interesting, like quirky sounds and bass lines. And there's an aspect to it. That's like what I thought was really interesting is that the content is really actually intense and heavy and really uh, sometimes very serious, most of the time very serious. But then you have these like fun, like sounds that are portraying that those ideas. So it's really, I mean, just I, Meryl Garbus is brilliant. You mentioned early on that you had had a bunch of music that you discovered, and it seems like you had many female kind of role models and collaborators. And it seems like female collaborators and mentors is like a big theme in, in your musical evolution. Absolutely. I felt so lucky that the first, so I, yeah, Tune Yards was kind of my my first big break. And I was on stage with three other women and, and one amazing guy. So, you know, that's not typical. And and then to have, you know, my Diane Downs when I'm in second grade say, you know, hit like a girl, you know, like these sort of encouraging terms that, you know, because feeling inferior is something that's learned. And I, I was so lucky to, like you said, I had a lot of really strong female mentors and two older sisters that are really fierce, too. <laughs> so what was it like going on a world tour right when you arrived in a new place? I mean, maybe that's oversimplifying, but it sounds like that's kind of how it happened. It is. It is how it happened. It was it was surreal. It's it sort of just I didn't have time to think about it because, I mean, I'm telling you, she asked me if I could come on tour. I thought about it for like two seconds, <laughs> said yes, and then left. So we were more or less strangers. You know, we spent probably a month learning the album and then we went on the road. And guess who we opened for for our very first show? was opening for Arcade Fire in an arena. So it was scary because I don't, I don't think we built our sound to play for an arena. We built our sound to play these uh, thousand person, few thousand person venues. So I, I was talking to um, a guitarist friend a few weeks ago about this, and he was in a band called the Disco Biscuits, um, still is. And he um, talked about playing in like a theater and playing in a much bigger, out, particularly outdoor venue, but even just a bigger indoor venue, that the sound reverberates differently. As a percussionist, that must be particularly hard to get used to. Is that something you have to take into consideration in every venue you play? Yeah, definitely. Especially, you know, if if it's a quick turnover, like for a festival, like your, like your friend was saying, a festival, you get like 20 to 30 minutes to turn over if you're not the headliner. And you don't really get to like check your sound the way you want to check your sound. Sometimes your monitor works, sometimes it doesn't. So if my monitor's not working and I can't hear the loops that Meryl made or I can't hear Meryl's vocal, I'm immediately gonna adjust my volume because I need to hear the melody. And then same thing in a venue. Like if it's a small venue, I'm gonna take my, my volume down because drums acoustically are already taking up a lot of space. How does it affect the way you actually play? Self-mixing is something I think as musicians we learn by gigging a lot. You know, sometimes you just have to self-mix. You can tell if the person standing in front of you is like, you know, you're playing too loud. 
you know, but typically <laughs> like we were lucky we had like, you know, we had some good sound engineers. Um, so that's a whole nother character in the band is the sound engineer. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, I mean, so this world tour happens and how long were you gone? Oh my gosh. We were gone like two years and we had breaks, but like they were small. So we were like on the road playing five to six shows a week, doing radio shows, uh, driving and playing a show in the same day sometimes, loading and unloading, uh, setting up our own gear and then have, you know, performing. What were some of the biggest lessons from that? Um, being on tour, like uh, my biggest takeaway is that you have to find time for self-care. You have to find the time to still continue the same day-to-days that you did back home, but on the road, which is, you know, it's difficult to find time to work out. You know, I, I started to meditate, which was not something that I had always done in life. That was something, you know, Meryl did in the mornings that I sort of was like, you know, I want to try that. But for me, since I'm a very physical person, if, if energy builds up in me, and I don't release it. I can get very anxious. I can get a little confused. So I had to find a way to go for a run or do jumping jacks or push-ups or push myself to let that out. And that's hard on the road. I'm still trying to gather that balance. You have to, you know, have to be very uh, diligent about being like, this is me time. And you have to be disciplined because you're setting up your own schedule, you know? I mean, you know, people think it's like just a, like almost like a vacation sometimes, which it looks like that much fun and it is that much fun, but it's also a lot of work. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of touring musicians. It's, like, <laughs> it's and it's it's hard on your body too, right? Like we take for granted that you sleep in the same bed most nights, which is like really good for your body, right? And you're yeah. sleeping in hundreds of different places. Um, I, I can't imagine what that does to your body, let alone like the emotional and mental side of it. Yeah, I think it's really important to like keep an emotional uh, stability on tour, and you find that through you know taking taking your time to do the things that, that ground you. Also, tour bus, you're sleeping in, in a bed the size of a coffin. I can't imagine. It doesn't look like a place you want to sleep. Some people love it, though. Some people feel like hummed and like rocked by the, 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 the bus engine. Yeah, I don't think I would like that, but I, I won't ever have to try it probably. Uh, so <laughs> when you came off that world tour, what did you want to do next? I think usually after doing something where I'm more or less like a hired gun, like contributing to somebody else's project that I'm not necessarily creatively involved in, in the album. I really like feel like I want to work on my own, uh, my own stuff. I want to dig into my own creative spirit and, and start communicating through that and tapping into that. And so anytime I finish a big tour, I try to take some time to myself, collaborate with friends. Also, you know, get back into the local scene. Like, you know, after I finished the Tune Yards tour, I moved back to New York. I miss New York. I miss the, I'm an East Coast gal. I miss that sort of fire and fast pace and the just going and walking and just always moving. I don't know. I think I, I really always want to be like, okay, let me work on some stuff of my own and let me connect with my local community because they think I'm on tour still, you know, so I try to just, you know, get back into my local scene. And is that how you got connected with Donald Glover or how did that come about? Man, this is why the University of Miami was just like such an amazing place. The best musicians. I I stayed close to a lot of my friends um, and one of them being Chris Hartz. Um, He's an amazing drummer and he has been Donald's musical director since the 
basically the beginning. He kind of put the band together, him and Ludwig. Um, and I think, you know, on Donald's first few albums, there wasn't really a lot of percussion. And then for Awaken My Love, they recorded tons of percussion. I mean, this album just took a turn. It had like soul and funk and Motown and R&B and that meant a lot of percussion sounds. So Chris, basically, it was kind of perfect timing. Another little serendipity. I had kind of just finished tour and he hit me up. He was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, hey, uh, nothing. I just kind of got back to New York. I'm just like, uh, you know, settling in after tour, which is always its own transitional period. Um, and he said, you know, we just finished an album. We're going to put together, uh, get the band back together and go on tour. Would you want to join? I was like, man, that sounds awesome. Gave me the dates. It worked out. And uh, they flew me out to California and I just started learning the music. And it was that, you know, a lot of things that I've been connected to are totally just through like the network and the connections that I've built. That's amazing. And so Donald Glover, obviously, is an actor, producer, um, and um, most famously a musician, Childish Gambino. And every time he comes out with a new album, it's one of the biggest hits of the year. And so you you kind of got connected to this amazing, huge artist. And what what was that like? And, and how did you how did you integrate into the into the group? So it was really cool to be, you know, invited to play by a friend and he's the musical director. So there was already sort of this trust there. But what was interesting is that my role, I mean, was completely going to be different than my role in Tune Yards. My role in Tune Yards, I was very, very much a part of the rhythmic foundation. You take out my part, the rhythm would more or less collapsed depending on which part Meryl was playing. But, you know, we were intertwined rhythms. So to, you know, without one of them, the rhythmic foundation isn't there as much anymore, you know. And then with Gambino, I am now taking on the percussion role. There's already a full kit. So I am taking on the role of like colors, icing on the cake, adding to the rhythm, but I'm not like holding as much rhythmic responsibility, I, I don't feel. I saw a video of the a Grammy um, Awards performance, and it seemed like that's sort of what I was observing your role as. You were like adding layers on top of the the rhythm, which is really cool. We'll link to that performance. What was that like playing in, at the Grammys? I mean, that is like, you know, that is an ultimate dream come true. And it was just a great experience. Like we, uh, Chris Hartz, typically would be playing drum set, also the musical director of Passion Pit. Passion Pit was on tour. Okay. So I basically took on um, the role of the, the main lead rhythmic person. So that was exciting. And we had this intimate band on this small circular stage. And, you know, it was just amazing. You you have people all around you. I think I saw Beyonce. I winked at her. It was a, <laughs> she, you know, I, I don't, I, I just, yeah. I was overwhelmed. I was so excited. The, the great thing is that we had all been playing together. We were familiar with each other's grooves and and it felt so natural to be up there with Thomas Drayton, Donald Glover, Ludwig Granzen, and um, Brandon Coleman. What's it like working with Donald Glover? And I ask because it seems like people like that have some kind of special talent to be able to do hundreds of things at once and all of them really well. Have you observed anything that you've learned particularly from working with him? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's Superman <laughs> because I don't know how he has time for all of the things that he does. I know that he is just an extremely hard worker. He's brilliant and he's boundless. Like he doesn't have blockers. Like if he has an idea, he expresses it and he has a team of people that, that help that come to fruition. And he's just, he's always thinking, you know, he's, he's an active thinker. And I know like when we were on tour, his sound engineer, Riley, would actually bring in like a studio more or less and they'd build a studio because somebody that creative, like, you know, he doesn't know when the ideas are going to come to him. So he wants to be able to get them out when, when and if, you know, they happen to come that day. So he sets himself up to have people around for when he is ready, they can sort of execute those ideas, I think, which is super inspiring. And his team is like, you know, his friends and, and these people that he trusts and that are extremely smart and talented. So, you know, they they can make things come together and they just bounce off of each other. And I think having a really great team is important. And I've seen that in Donald and also just being an amazing leader and just not having like limitations um, when you have an idea like he really lets his creative ideas come to life. That's really cool to hear. Thanks for sharing that. So I, I want to ask you about um, this project you did called It's Time. So you did an hour-long drum score for a live dance performance with a choreographer. Can you tell us just about that and, and what that process was like? Yeah, this was really fun because it was it was a piece directed and written by Jen Freeman, choreographed by Jen Freeman. Jen and I met doing a performance together. Um, it was Sonia Taya's performance, You'll Still Call Me By Name. Now, fast forward, Jen reaches out to me and she's like, I've always loved rhythm, I've always loved drum set, I want to write a 60 minute piece with a drum score. And I was like, whoa, like whoever wanted to hear 60 minutes of just drums, I love you. Uh, so I was really fascinated by that. And what it was more fascinating as she started to talk to me about her concept, she's connecting rhythm and tempo directly to time and the urgency of time and the feeling of time and what how that impacts humans and people. So. I was like more or less as a drummer, I was the storyteller. So that was just an amazing role for me to take on at the time because I had never really been like the lead composer. I've always been a part of the composition, adding my rhythmic part, but it was a really cool um, new shoes to step into, a new hat to wear. What's, what is the it's time? What, what was the idea behind it? So the idea is that I am the drummer and I'm the storyteller. So I am playing these fast and these slow and these jarring rhythms that are immediately translating to the dancers and the influence of time on humans, whether that's like in 30 minutes, you have a break. And so that feels like a calming, like something to look forward to. Or if that's in 30 minutes, you have to start your day, you have to go to work. And like, she had a clock in the back and um, I interacted with that clock quite a bit and the idea of counting down and like how nervous it can make you to constantly see a clock counting down. Uh, so yeah, we played around, like I would send her snippets and then she would attach to some of them and we'd throw some of them out and we would just kind of go back and forth in that way.
So let's talk a little bit about the future looking forward. You've listened to and played everything from classical to world music to Afrobeat to pop and I mean everything. What else do you want to do? Are there genres or areas of music that you want to explore? Absolutely. I am in this place where it feels like I feel like this urgency to like create and to develop my own sound. I've constantly been hired uh, because I'm good at playing parts. I can learn parts fast. I can play patterns. I have a good sense of time. So I'm a good hired gun in that way. But, you know, a lot of times I don't get to really tap in deeply into my own creative spirit. And I think that's something I'm really wanting to um, work and tap into a little more. What's great with Donald, like, you know, as he was writing new songs on the road, like I was actually starting to create my own parts, which was exciting. And I actually went into the studio with him and for the last album, I'm on the last album and I wrote those parts and that's exciting. I love when people give you that opportunity to have your voice. I think moving forward, I will just continue to try and collaborate with people that inspire me, collaborate with people who who want to hear my voice, you know, who want okay, I want to hire Danny for this because I know her sound. Like, I want people to know my sound. I want that to be why people hire me, not only just to play a part that's already written. In this time of quarantine and sort of maximum time alone with with whoever we're with in our quarantine, where's your creative energy going? So I got super lucky um, and... I'm actually quarantined. The studio that's underneath my apartment where I'm staying right now um, is shared with me by Sarah Neufeld, who is an amazing violinist. She's the violinist for Arcade Fire um, and Bell Orchestra. And because it's quarantine, we're like limited on people we can see. We found comfort and inspiration in starting to meet up and play together. And, you know, respectively, our sounds are quite different, but we found like an incredible synthesis together. And, you know, we started slowly writing songs and we take on different projects for live streams, um, including the Kentucky Performing Arts Center um, at home who asked us to perform. So we just started, you know, developing our ideas and we would play games, you know, we'd be like, you know, today you, you think of an idea, Sarah. She'd think of an idea, I'd add on top. Next day, Danny, what's you you start the idea. And then the next day, let's do just an improv. And then, you know, we would record all of these so we can refer back and pick what we like and then, you know, start developing those small ideas into something bigger. That's something else that I discovered is like, and I had been discovering this uh, over the past few years, but when I strip a lot of the things away from me, the material things, like, and, and have just a limited amount of, of tools and options, like, that's when I feel most creative. When I have to dig deeper with and, and use just the, the what I have, what I have at my fingertips, not think like, oh, I have to have the perfect recording, so I can't do that project until I have the perfect thing. Like, no, I'm going to do that project and I'm going to use what I have and that's going to be what it is. So I have found like incredible inspiration in just the simplicity of utilizing what I have and that being okay because we are in quarantine time. So people have this you know new feeling of like, we have what we have and that's what we're going to work with, you know, and, and there's like this acceptance to that, which is really beautiful. That's interesting. And so you, right now you're focusing on kind of making music and now you found another great female collaborator, it sounds like. And it sounds like you'll be making some more unique music soon. 
Yeah, I think, you know, this could very well lead to an EP of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it's great to to realize, like, just as you and I are communicating, now we have this connection, like, she's a great friend of mine, so that translates immediately to music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just another form of communication. If we already understand each other on a, you know, on another level, then we're probably going to be able to communicate well musically as well. One last question. In, in all of your experience thus far musically, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? That's an amazing question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say I I could break it into two. The first one is that an opportunity comes in many forms, shapes, scenarios. Just because something isn't perfect from, you know, the cover doesn't mean there's not a layer inside that's going to serve you um, in the future. So taking opportunities and experiences is really important because that builds your network, that grows your web. And then the second one would be, I used to be, I guess, a little more arrogant (laughs) and thinking, you know, well, this is, this is my idea and I love it. Like, I just want to have this idea. Well, you know, when you're supporting somebody, you have to serve a larger picture. I had to do that with Jen's music. I was the creator of the composition, but I was serving her bigger picture. And, you know, with Tune Yards, I'm serving the album. With with Donald, I'm serving his his idea of what he wants his music to sound like. And so not always is he going to like my part. He might want something completely different, and I have to not attach to my first thought. I have to be open to trying other things. And that's, that's been a huge lesson, just to stay open and, and don't attach too much, you know, just try, try other options when necessary. That's a great, those are great lessons. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I thought that was the last question, but I actually have one more question. Where is Diane now? Diane Downs is in Louisville, Kentucky, and she's still the director of the Louisville Leopard Percussionists. Amazing. And do you think she's inspired many, many other kids like, like she's inspired you? I mean, so many. Because Diane makes music fun and it's important for kids to enjoy what they're doing. That's, you can, it could be the weirdest thing ever. You can have a science teacher and you're talking about something that should be really boring, but if they're a great teacher and they make you have fun, like you're gonna love it. Some of the drummers that have gone through the program are really doing amazing things. Uh, Many of us, like Hannah Ford, who was uh, Prince's last drummer. Came through that? No way. Yeah, she H- Hannah Ford. She Hannah Welton is her now her name. Um, she's married. Uh, yeah, she was Prince's last drummer. I mean, Diane is one of the biggest influences of my life, and I'm sure that'll stay true uh, as years go on because she's still a mentor of mine. But I mean, she's been to more weddings than anybody I know because everybody stays close to her. Like she really impacts people's lives. Yeah, it's great that you had someone like that. Okay, well, thank you for taking the time. And thank you so much for having me. And everyone should stick around for some music. So thanks, Danny. Thank you, RJ. And now here's Danny Markham playing three new, never before heard songs with Sarah Neufeld. Hey, everybody. My name is Danny Markham. I am joined here by Sarah Neufeld. Hi. And um, thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoy the music.
we hiked together, we cooked together. Uh, when New York was open, we frolicked the streets together. Um, but when New York closed down, we were kind of, we felt all stuck inside. So we started playing music together. Um, so really it's only been since March that we started playing. And, and they, these songs are a product of, of just COVID basically. Yeah, these are brand new. And uh, it's, it's a sound that neither of us have ever really experimented with before. Percussion and, and violin and, and synth bass, which is invisible to your eye. But um, I, it's, it's a really interesting sound. And I, I find it like it's, it offers it's a lot of possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, synthesized. It is. All right, so this one's really fast. Let's do it. Thank you. 
It's <laughs> a good feeling. So this is our last piece um, that we've written together that we're going to play for you today. I'm just adjusting my little noise. Thank you, Os Osiris, so much for having us. Yeah. It's been fun.
That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. That last little interlude um, is dedicated to Brianna Taylor. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Osiris. Sarah Neufeld. Danny Markham, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 